The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, the 17th chapter and the 15th verse. The 15th verse in the 17th chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Behold, they say unto me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come, or let it come now. Now, it seems to me, as I indicated last uh, Sunday evening, that if we are to catch the full significance and meaning of this statement, we must take it in connection with the previous verse, verse 14. There we listen to the prophet Jeremiah himself, crying out unto the Lord and saying, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For thou art my praise. That's my position, he seems to say. What is their position? Well, it's this. Behold, they say unto me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. In other words, in these two verses together, we have the end and the closing of this particular message, which the prophet Jeremiah was given by God to deliver to his people. It starts, you remember, at verse 5. Thus saith the Lord, and the message follows, and here, in a sense, the real message ends, because from there on the prophet just continues to offer up a very personal plea for himself that God would save him from the unjust injustice and the unfairness of his fellow countrymen who misunderstood him so grievously, and that God would vindicate him and his ministry. So that I say that here, in a sense, the actual burden, the message itself, really finishes. And it finishes, of course, on this note. It reminds us that there are only two possible ultimate positions for us all to occupy. We are all of us either believers or else we are unbelievers. Now, the Bible is not interested in any other categories whatsoever. I know that the world is divided up in many other ways, and people attach very great significance to these other divisions and distinctions. Wealthy and poor, great and small, they divide us up according to the color of our skins, the social stratum to which we belong, whether we are learned and ig or ignorant, and so on and so forth. All right. But I'm saying that from the standpoint of the Bible, all those distinctions are utterly irrelevant. Indeed, they are tragically irrelevant. Because in the last analysis, there is only this one division and distinction. The Bible only wants to know one thing about everybody, and that is this. Are you a believer or are you an unbeliever? Are you one of God's people, or are you not one of God's people? Are you a Christian, or are you not a Christian? Now, that's the great question that the Bible goes on putting from the very beginning to the very end. 
You see, it starts away back at the beginning in the book of Genesis. The first men and women had two sons. One's called Abel, the other's called Cain. And there you have at once believer and unbeliever. The distinction started at the beginning. And if you go right through the book to the book of Revelations, you'll find the same thing. You'll find a wonderful description of the glory of God's people. Then we are told outside are dogs and sorcerers and adulterers and all these others who are unbelievers. Now, as you go right through, you'll find it's always that. Some believed, some didn't believe. Some went after him, some rejected him. The house is either on the rock or else on the sand. You either enter by the straight gate or by the wide gate. It's always that, either this or that, one or the other, and there is no other possible position. Very well, then, this is surely something very fundamental. We are all of us in one of these two relationships, in one of these two positions. What is it that determines it? What is it that decides it? How may we know for certain which of these two positions is the one to which we belong? Well, now, then, fortunately, the answer is given to us here in this verse at the very end, as it was given at the very beginning. The one thing that determines our position is our attitude to the word of the Lord. Behold, they say unto me, where is the word of the Lord? That's it. It's their attitude to that that proclaims what they are. You notice that we started many Sunday nights ago with the same thing. Thus hath the Lord it starts with the word of the Lord. It ends with the word of the Lord. The whole thing is our attitude to the word of the Lord. And it is tonight again the one thing that determines precisely where we stand and what our eternal future is to be. Now as regards the word of Jeremiah in its local and temporary application, the thing is perfectly clear. I reminded you of it every Sunday night that we've considered this great passage. Here are the children of Israel in trouble. Things going from bad to worse. The enemy attacking at the very gates. Is it all hopeless? Well, no, there is still a possibility. God has sent his prophets to them one after another. He's still sending his prophet to them in Jeremiah. God goes on speaking until the 59th second of the 11th hour. He goes on to the very last moment. Still there is hope. Yes, but it is only if they listen to the message of God. So God gave the message to Jeremiah and told him to go to the people and to put it before them. Thus saith the Lord. And the message was that they should realize that their calamities had come upon them and would increase because of their sin, because of their rebellion against God, because of their disobedience. It was the only cause of their trouble. And that indicated the only way of relief and of deliverance if they acknowledged it and if they confessed it. 
If they repented and turned back to God with a whole and undivided heart, even now he'd spare them and he'd deliver them. But if they didn't, calamity would overwhelm them. The enemy would come in and destroy their city and reduce it to a heap of rubble and of ruins, and they would be carried away to the captivity of the land of Babylon by these Chaldeans. That's the message. Thus saith the Lord, that is the word of the Lord, an indication of the position, a warning, an appeal, an offer. And their whole circumstance depends entirely upon their response to that. In the case of Jeremiah, we've seen it. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for thou art my praise. But Jeremiah was a very lone voice. The crowd of false prophets were on the other side, and they carried the people with them. And they said, where is this word of the Lord? Let it come. You see the two responses. Now, that, as I've been indicating, is a very perfect statement of the position of everybody in this world tonight with regard to the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which we have in the New Testament. May I put it simply and plainly? The thing that determines whether we are Christians or not, the thing that determines whether we are right with God or not, is still this one thing. Our response, our reaction to the word of God, to the message of God in Jesus Christ, this message of salvation. May I put it once again, lest there may be somebody who still is harboring the false notions. What determines whether we are Christians or not and whether we are right with God or not is not our life in the first instance. Life matters tremendously. But it isn't the life you live that determines whether you're a Christian or whether you're going to be with God beyond death and the grave. It isn't the life you live. Neither is it your feelings. Feelings are essential, but nice, happy, comfortable feelings don't prove that you're a Christian. They may be very, very deceiving. We've seen already that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That people may think they're all right and say, Lord, Lord. But he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And may I add that it is not experiences either that decide whether we are Christians or not and right with God. There are people who can tell us about marvelous experiences, about having seen great lights and some great dramatic change in their lives. They say, I'm absolutely different. I've been delivered from certain sins that always got me down. Look at me now, how happy and radiant I am. A marvelous experience. Well, let me say again that experience is essential and that no man can be a Christian without experiencing the grace and the power of God. But... If you think that a change in your life or an experience which is thrilling proves that you're a Christian, you may again be the victim of a delusion of Satan. 
There are false experiences. There are spurious experiences. The devil can give people experiences and they can be very joyous and very happy experiences. It isn't experience that determines. I say that what determines where we are and how we stand tonight is our response, our reaction to the word of the Lord and nothing else. I know people who can testify to the most astounding experiences by way of being made happy and joyful. But they don't believe in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't believe in his atoning sacrificial death. They don't believe in the person of the Holy Spirit. Well, very well. I'm not interested in their experiences. Their experiences are not Christian. You cannot be a Christian unless you believe the word of the Lord. This is the determining thing and nothing else. Another thing I would add is this. It isn't our activities either that prove that we are Christian. You can be a very busy church worker and not be a Christian. You can be tremendously interested in religion and still not be a Christian. It isn't our activity, it isn't what we do that decides it. It's what do we make of this word of the Lord that comes to us. There are two possibilities. And though I may work and give my body to be burned, as Paul puts it, and do and give all my goods to the poor, I may do all that, but if I haven't believed and submitted to this word, it'll avail me nothing and I'm not a Christian. And I'm wrong in the sight of God. Very well then I say this is the first and the great thing. This is the only test. Thus saith the Lord. What has he said? What is his message? Well, it's still in its essence the same as the message of Jeremiah to his contemporaries. The word of the Lord to men and women today is still first and foremost a warning. It's still the message of the law. It's still the holiness of God. It is still the Ten Commandments. They haven't been abrogated. Though men and women spit upon them and laugh at them, they're gods and they're still operative and they'll never be put aside. That's the message of the Lord. That's the word of the Lord still. He comes to the human race and says, I've made you for myself. I want you for myself. I've asked for your obedience. I say, be ye holy, for I am holy. Are you holy? It is still a proclamation of his law. It is still a reminder that his law is going to be put into operation. And that we shall all be tried by it and examined by it and judged by it. It is a warning, I say, that unless we can claim to have kept it and to obey it, that we shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. That's it. It's still there. It hasn't been withdrawn. And no supposed literary criticism or scientific criticism of this scripture can take it out. It's there from beginning to end. Warning. Law. And then it's a call to repentance. It's a call to us to realize that and having realized it to go to God with haste and to confess it and to acknowledge it. 
and to tell him that we are conscious of our unworthiness and our folly and our rebellion. It's a call to repentance. And then, thank God, it's a call to us to listen to the gospel offer, to listen to God's statement that he has so loved the world that he has sent his only begotten Son into it, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It is still the ancient story, the old, old story of Jesus and his love, of the Son of God who came down and humbled himself and took his sin, our sins upon him and took them to the cross and bore them in his own body and that there he was punished for them and for us. And that because of that, God offers us pardon and forgiveness, a new life and all we need. That's the word of the Lord. That is the message of the Christian salvation this evening. And it comes to us as it came of old. Well, now here's the question. What is our response to it? And I remind you again, my dear friends, that there are only two possible responses. Last Sunday night we considered the Christian response, the believer's response, which is this again. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for thou art my praise. The Christian says, quite right, I accept it, I admit it, it's all true. I haven't a word to say. I cast myself upon thy mercy. I believe, though I don't understand. That's the believer's response. But, oh, alas, there is another response. And here it is in this 15th verse. Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. I say once more in this series of sermons on this noble chapter that I would to God that I hadn't to preach on a text like this. But I'm not here to choose texts. I'm here to expand the scripture, to hold the truth before you. And as Jeremiah ends with it, I end with it. Here is the position, you see, of the unbeliever who faces the same message. And as we look at it, you'll find, I think, that all the characteristics of unbelief are here very plainly and clearly set forth before us. Here yeah, perhaps it's in a particularly extreme and blatant form, but still the principle is the same, and it describes all unbelievers tonight perfectly. Isn't there something almost incredible about this? Isn't it almost beyond belief that there should be anybody in the world who can react like that to the message of Almighty God? But there are such people. Therefore, let me ask you to consider with me hurriedly my simple analysis of this terrible, appalling condition which leads to such unthinkable consequences. What is it that's true of all people who are not Christians? Well, the first thing that's obviously true of them is this, that they disbelieve the word of God. They don't believe it. That is why we very rightly call them unbelievers. You see, the thing I'm emphasizing is this, that the thing that takes a man to hell in the last analysis is not drunkenness, nor even murder. It's unbelief. So that your most respectable person will go there also unless he believes. 
It's belief or unbelief that determines our destiny, not what we do, I say, and all these other things. Surely this needs no demonstration. If a man believes this word of God, he'll act on it. He's bound to. You can't believe my synopsis of the gospel just now and just sit where you are and do nothing and say, all right, I carry on. It's impossible. If you believe these things of necessity, you must do something about it. I mean by that that you must go to God and acknowledge it and confess it. You must believe his message and accept it and give yourself to Christ and forsake the world and take up your cross and go after him. You can't help it. You must If you believe this message, you'll flee from the wrath to come. You'll fly to the fountain where alone you can be cleansed. And you know, my friend, if you haven't done that, there's only one reason for that. And that is that you don't believe the word of the Lord. You don't really believe it. You've heard it, you've listened to it, you may say, oh, well, I know that. But if you, if you haven't done anything about it, I say, you really don't believe it. Because if you believe it, I say, it doesn't need any demonstration. You must act upon it. If a man tells you when you're walking in the country, don't step any further in that direction, the ground suddenly will give way beneath you and you'll fall to destruction. You'd listen to him, wouldn't you? You'd you'd pull back and you'd draw yourself back. Of course. I'm telling you something infinitely more alarming than that. And unless you've done something about it in the way I've indicated, there's only one explanation. You don't believe it. Oh, that unbelief expresses itself in many ways. Sometimes it uh, works in this way, that uh, a man has a sort of temporary belief. Ah, yes, he says, I I felt it that night. I I really was moved by it. And he felt he ought to do something about it. Yes, but the next day that had gone, and he didn't continue what he had resolved the night before. It's of no value, you see. That isn't really a belief that's being moved emotionally. And we can be moved emotionally. We can be moved in our wills without our minds and our understandings being involved. We can do things in almost an automatic state, but they don't last and it doesn't lead to anything. It's finally of no saving value. It is belief of the truth. A man seeing it and knowing it and acting because of that. That's the thing that is of value in the sight of God. A temporary belief is no belief. Oh, sometimes it works like this, that people hear it and they say, well, there seems to be something in that, but then they forget all about it. It's like a man, says James, looking at his natural face in a glass, and the moment he walks away, he forgets what he looks like. There are many people who look into the perfect law of liberty, but they don't continue therein. Again, it's of no value. They don't really see it. They've never really believed it. But you see, it may take the form as it did in the case of these contemporaries of Jeremiah of an active opposition to it. The sort of person who says that gospel of blood, how I hate it, how immoral it is, I can't believe it, and miracles, and two natures in one person, an active, militant opposition to it. It's all unbelief. Yes, but the thing I want to emphasize tonight is this, that a kind of passive resistance is as much unbelief as is that militant, militant, 
active resistance to it. If you haven't really put it into operation, you haven't believed it, whatever the form it may chance to take. The second thing I want to say about this unbeliever, this person who is not a Christian, is that he also defies the word of God. He doesn't only disbelieve it, he defies it. And in various ways he scoffs at it. It's very obvious here, isn't it? They say, where is the word of the Lord? You, Jeremiah, they say, come before us day after day and you stand there and you say in that glib, anxious manner of yours, in that glib self-satisfaction, thus saith the Lord, you've been saying it for years, but where is it? Let it come. They defy it with insolence and daring. They scoff at it. Now, there are many people who still do that. The modern way of putting that, of course, is to put it like this, isn't it? They say, you know, you're a little bit behind the times with your blood and thunder preaching. You ought to have been alive a hundred years ago. It would work then. People could be frightened. But of course... We are 20th century men. We can't be frightened. You can't do that with us. It's the same thing, you see. That's the spirit. Where is the word of the Lord? Don't you know about our knowledge and about our science? I can't be frightened. But you know, I've sometimes heard very quiet and nice people doing exactly the same thing. They haven't spoken violently when they've heard this sort of thing. But they've gone away saying, oh, that was too harsh. That isn't the love of God. That's not the love of Christ. That's not a part of the gospel. They've defied it. They've come to the conclusion that God has never spoken like this. And that there is no such thing as the wrath of God and the justice and the righteousness of God. They have said there isn't such a thing and we're not going to listen to it. Some of them then put it like this. They say, well, I don't believe that gospel. But nothing seems to go wrong. Nothing happens. Indeed, they say. I know many Christian people who've had a very terrible time and none of these things have happened to me. What of it? What of this word of the Lord? I'll compare my life with theirs. Look at them and their troubles and their trials. Look at my life. All is well with me. Where is the word of the Lord? That's what they're saying. Then others put it in this form. They say, you know, it doesn't really seem to make much difference whether you believe or whether you don't. The life of Christians and non-Christians, in, the, in respect of these matters, as to what happens to them, it seems to be almost identical. It doesn't make any difference. Well, now then, why? Where is this? That's the position. The unbeliever, I say, is one who disbelieves the word of the Lord and he defies it and he scoffs at it. Why do they do so? Let me answer that question very hurriedly. The unbeliever disbelieves and scoffs at the word because he's ignorant. What's he ignorant of? Well, he's ignorant of history. He's ignorant of the fact that as Peter reminds those people to whom he writes that second epistle, he's ignorant of the fact that there have been people like him many times before in the world and they've said exactly the same thing. They've said, where is the promise of his coming? 
but they live to see that it did come. And a man who still says that sort of thing is just ignorant of history. He is ignorant of the story of the Bible, the historical facts chronicled here. He's ignorant even of his secular history, of the movement of God amongst the nations and in the world amongst its peoples. He's ignorant of all that. He wouldn't speak as he does if he knew his history. But he's also ignorant of God's ways and God's methods and God's times. He's got an idea, you see, that when God says he's going to do a thing, he'll do it at once. And when he discovers that God doesn't do it at once, he says, ha, I knew it wouldn't come to pass. I knew it would never happen. I never did believe it. I wasn't frightened for a second. God says, I'm told, but God does nothing. He's ignorant of the fact that with God a thousand years are as one day and one day as a thousand years. That God's ways are not our ways, nor God's thoughts our thoughts. That God has his own way of doing things, his own plan and purpose. God announces he may allow centuries to pass before he performs, but then he does it and never fails. They're ignorant of that. Because it doesn't happen to conform to their little timetables and to their own ideas, they think that it's never going to happen at all. Another thing they're ignorant of is this of God's might and God's power. You know, my friends, the way in which men speak of God tells us a great deal about him. When men say, why does God? They speak like that because they don't know his power. You read the book of Job and you'll find that poor Job said many things in his suffering and in his agony. Ah, yes, he discovered that he was ignorant, he didn't know. And the moment he saw God, you remember what he did? He put his hand upon his mouth. He said, I've spoken inadvisedly with my lips. I had heard of thee with the hearing of the ear, but now... What a fool I was, says Job, ever to have complained, ever to have thought that you were against me, or ever to have grumbled at your dealings with me. It's my little mind, I didn't know... And it's nothing but sheer stark ignorance that makes men speak like this and scoff at God and at his word. They don't know his might and his power. But oh, the most tragic aspect of their ignorance is this. They don't know God's love and God's long-suffering. The Lord is not slack, as some men count slackness, as Peter puts it, but is long-suffering toward us, to us, world. That's the explanation. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, these scoffers, how ignorant they are of his methods, of his might and his greatness. Yes, but I say, above everything else about this wonderful love of his, He's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And isn't that the appalling thing about the unbeliever? That he's ignorant of the fact that the very fact that he's still alive and that God hasn't blotted him out of existence is entirely due to the love of God. He wouldn't be there to scoff if God were not a God of love and gives him this further opportunity, as it were. 
the love of God and the compassion of God and the long-suffering of God. It is that characteristic of God, his holy love, that central attribute in the character of God that accounts for the fact that God delays and doesn't call the axe to fall the next minute. That's why you and I have been permitted to sin for years in unbelief and didn't go out once to hell. It's God's love, it's God's mercy, it's God's long-suffering and compassion. But the scoffer knows nothing about that. He is ignorant of the most glorious thing about God. Very well, there's our second point. The unbeliever, this non-Christian, disbelieves the word of God. The second thing is that he defies it and he scoffs at it. Yes, but the third and the last thing is this. The unbeliever, the disbeliever, the defier, the scoffer, shall prove the truth of the word of the Lord in his own life and in his own experience. Where is the word of the Lord? Cherembiah, with your preaching and your warnings, where is it? You've said it for years, nothing happens. If we'd listened to you a thousand times, we'd have said the end has come and we'd have escaped for our lives. Nothing's happened. Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. Let God do his worst. My last principle, I say, is this. That the request, the mocking, scoffing request of the unbeliever will be granted. He shall have that for which he asks. Defying God, he says, let it come. And the answer of God to all who may think and speak like that tonight is still this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. The day of the Lord shall come. It will come. Peter, with his prophetic insight and understanding, says, In the last day, scoffers shall arise and say, Where is the promise of his coming? Because they say everything stands in the world exactly as it did from the beginning. Where is all this threatening? Where is this idea of a judgment and the end of history and the end of the world? And God separating mankind into the two final groups. Where is it? Let it come. The day of the Lord will come. And will come as a thief in the night. Oh, my dear friends, what God says always comes. I said at the beginning that these unbelievers are ignorant of history. Let me prove my contention. As Peter reminds us in that third chapter of his second epistle, that was precisely what people said before the flood. 
Look at that man Noah. For 120 years he was building an ark and preaching to his contemporaries and saying, there is a terrible judgment coming. There is a flood coming. I'm building an ark to save myself and my house. Repent. Believe in God. Give up your sins lest you be drowned in the calamity for 120 years. And they left him, laughed at him with scorn and derision. But it came, it came. Sodom and Gomorrah in the same way wouldn't listen to the exhortations of the man who's described as righteous Lot, though he was a very poor man himself. But he saw the sin and he pleaded with them. They didn't listen. And they laughed at him. And they went on with all their vices and their sins and their immoralities. But the brimstone and the fire did fall. And the cities of the plain were destroyed. The mills of God grind slowly. But they grind exceeding small. Take these children of Israel before the captivity of Babylon. God raised up prophet after prophet, sent to them this mighty succession. And they pleaded with them and exhorted them. And did their utmost to bring them to repentance and to return to God. And they laughed at them. They killed so many of them. They said, these men are spoil spots. These men are alarmists. It's nonsense. Nothing's going to happen. But it did happen. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed and the Jews found themselves in the misery of the captivity of Babylon. You know, it was exactly the same at the time when our Lord himself was here on earth. Do you remember that extraordinary account that is given in the 27th chapter of Matthew's Gospel of the argument between Pilate and the authorities? Pilate was doing his utmost to, to set the Lord Jesus Christ at liberty. His wife had had a dream, you remember, and in the dream she had seen something of the truth, and she said to her husband, have nothing to do with these innocent men. Don't put this man to death at all costs, whatever you do. And Pilate went out to the men and said, you know, he said, I'm not going to do this. He took a bowl of water and he washed his hands before them. He said, I wash my hands. I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, this is what they said, His blood be on us and on our children. Pilate, they said, you're losing your nerve, men. You're rather forgetting that you're a great potentate. Are you frightened by a dream that your wife had last night? We are not afraid. You say you wash your hands of his blood. Very well. Let it come on us. His blood be on us. And on our children, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. And in A.D. 70 it came in the most violent and hellish manner that the world has ever known. The most awful calamity that's ever fell upon a nation. The Jews were overwhelmed. They were thrust out and they've remained out ever since. The awful slaughter of A.D. 70. The blood of Christ came upon them. They said, let it come. It came, and on their children, and on their children's children, and it's continuing until tonight. Read the story of the centuries of the massacre of the Jews, and of all that they've had to endure down to the days of Hitler, 
See the mark upon them. Why? They asked for it. They said, let it come. And it has come. And as certainly as we're in this building at this moment, to any man or woman who says the same thing defiantly, scoffingly, in terms of the knowledge of the 20th century, let it come. Where is it? What do I care? Your request, my friend, shall be granted. And you will know it. The word of the Lord will be fulfilled. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And there shall be a final conflagration and a destruction of evil and sin and all who've given themselves to it, they will be destroyed everlastingly out of the presence and the sight of the Lord. What is your response to the word of the Lord? Do you believe it? Do you believe that God's law is still in operation? Do you really believe that you'll have to answer point by point to the Ten Commandments? Do you believe that you, you yourself are going to be asked this? Have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself, do you really believe that you're not only going to be asked it, but that those are the terms in which you are going to be judged to all eternity? Do you believe it? Do you believe really that there is a life beyond death? And that when you die, it isn't the end, but that your spirit goes on. And that there's to be a final resurrection and a last judgment. And that you and I and all will stand before God. And that these are the terms I ask you. Do you really believe that? But that is going to happen to you. That is what God says. That is the message of the word of the Lord. That that is going to happen to every one of us as certainly as we are here now. More certain. Do you believe that unless you are right with God that you are going to hell? And that hell means eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord. Untold and unthinkable remorse and misery and suffering and unhappiness. Do you really believe it? If you really do, well, then you'll feel desperate. You'll feel hopeless. You'll feel that you haven't got a word to say for yourself, nor a plea to offer. You'll forget all your good deeds and all your kindness and all your busyness and activity and all your experiences and all else. And you'll say, I cannot stand before such a God. What can I do? 
and then you'll believe the further part of the message. That you must go to God at once and acknowledge and confess your sin. Repent, in other words, and seek salvation and ask him what can be done and then believe him when he tells you. Yes, that though this is so true of you and though you deserve nothing but such punishment, that nevertheless he's loved you and has so loved you that he made his son finally receive you unto himself and share his eternal glory with you. Do you believe it? That is the word of the Lord. Do you agree with Jeremiah and say, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed? No one else can heal me. I can't. No one can. You can. And if you do it, it's perfect. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for thou art my praise. Are you saying that? Have you said it? If you've never said it before, say it tonight in this service. Say it now. Say it as I give you an opportunity quietly at the close. If you believe it, I say you must. I don't want to bring pressure to bear upon you. I don't want you to respond to anything I say. I give you the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can't remain as you are. You must do something about it. You must see that to belong to the world and its way leads to hell and you don't want to go there. And you must see that the only way is to forsake it and the sin that belongs to it and go after Christ and trust to him. You must. If you believe this message concerning Jesus Christ and him crucified, you can go in the full assurance of faith. Because you say to yourself, though I am a sinner, though I am guilty of sins, Christ has borne them, has borne their punishment and their guilt. He's taken them away, and God will remember them no more. I believe this, so by the blood of Christ, I'll go in as I am, trusting to his perfect work and his merit, knowing that God will honor his word and will receive me. That's the full assurance of faith. It isn't ignoring your sins, it's facing them, it's confessing them, it's admitting them, but saying, yes, but Christ has died for them. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. It's the only thing that's strong enough and potent enough to take out the stain of sin. But it is enough. And it doesn't matter what you've been. I can't give you a list that is worse than that which Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 6. It includes everybody in this congregation, doesn't it? Have you been a murderer? It doesn't matter. That can be blotted out. That stain can be taken out by the blood of Christ if you but believe he died for you. So don't talk about your sins. Don't talk about your fitness any longer or any more. All the fitness you require is to feel your need of him. His blood cleanseth from all sin and unrighteousness.
you believe that. And then go in the full assurance and confidence of faith, pleading only the blood of Christ shed for you and for your sins, and God will receive you and will let you know that your sins and iniquities he will remember no more. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. When God washes you in the blood of Christ, there is no more remembrance of sin. It's gone. Your sins are forgiven in him. And you go to God to thank him and to give yourself to him and to pledge yourself to live only to his praise, his glory, his honor, who has so loved you that at such a price and at such a cost he has ransomed and rescued and redeemed and cleansed you and brought you back into himself and is now beginning to shower his blessings upon you. The first question is the guilt of your past sins. And until they are removed, you're out of relationship with God. But in Christ and him crucified, you can be reconciled, restored, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like me, his praise should sing. Amen.